welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast, where we analyze, explore, and celebrate the creative journey. My name is Julie Afan Balzer, and I am a working artist living outside of Boston. I've been hosting this podcast with my super special co-host and my mom, Eileen Shoebalzer, since 2012. Hi, Mom. Hi. I just want people to know you've been mocking me mercilessly until this podcast started. Yeah. Well, I, why don't you just explain why? To know. Why have I been mocking you mercilessly? So we started videotaping this podcast so that it could also go up on YouTube because it turns out that an enormous number of people like to like watch you talk as opposed to just listen to you talk, right? And so... Uh, I, I guess I've gotten so used to showing up on camera looking like me, messy buns, um, sweatpants, like whatever it is that I, no makeup, like I just don't care. But mom is used to being fully presented. And so she's been very concerned about her lighting. And I, uh, I was mercifully, mercifully, mercilessly mocking her because I was like, listen, for the most part, people are listening and they don't care what you look like. And anyway, the thing that I guess I always grew up with is thinking that like, and what you always taught me is that like being smart, being intelligent, being creative, being that's like these are the things to value so who cares what you look like exactly well i guess i do well there you go revealed <laughs> so listen this is episode 134 which is kind of amazing but on the other hand we have been pod podcasting since 2012 so it's taken us a while to get here and one of the things that i recently did is i announced that after 17 years of blogging almost every single day, I was hanging up my hat. And part of the reason for that is that, especially now with a baby, although he's not much of a baby, he's four now, it's very hard for me to sort of juggle everything, right? To do all those things. And I finally decided I wanted to prioritize the podcast over the blog and over some other things. And so hopefully this gives us the time. I'd like to have a full podcast season of like 25 episodes this year in 2024. That's our goal. We're striving for it. What do you think, mom? Are we going to do it? If you make enough fun of me, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> if that's the standard, we're going to way overshoot it then. Um, so today, sort of appropriate for this theme, and also I thought for the beginning of the year, the theme is re really like about reinventing yourself creatively, right? Um, and I think that this is so much about, um, if you're wondering why you might want to do that, or maybe how you could possibly do that, like that's what this episode is for. So um, I made a list because I'm a list maker of six different, you know, sort of like basic ideas of like, sort of like why and how you might want to reinvent yourself. But I guess I'll ask first, uh, mom, have you ever reinvented yourself? I think you have to reinvent yourself every time there's a major change in your life. So when I had children, uh, when I got divorced, uh, if you move to a new place where suddenly you have to find, figure out your routines, I think you're constantly reinventing yourself. And if you're not, then you're unhappy because you're always looking over your shoulder at the way it used to be. And that's not a way to live. Yeah, I think that's 100 percent true. I think, you know, there's a sort of tale that gets told about like when you go to college is the chance that you have to reinvent yourself. And in some ways, that's true because you've been with the same people, right, for, for a lot of people who don't move, who stay in the same place for much of your life. And so then, you know what I mean, you have this chance. Or again, if you're moving or changing or life changes, and that's exactly number one on my list. See how in sync we are? Is what you're uh, <laughs> Yes, I'm moving. Uh, which is that people change. And as people evolve, as time marches on, right, your perspectives, your interests, and your skills naturally change. And reinventing yourself creatively allows for alignment with these changes. So like a big example of that is um, there are a couple things that have really changed about my art practice. I really largely do abstract work right now. Um, I used to do tons and tons of faces. I was obsessed with eyes for like several years. And there's still people who like maybe are less current with where I am now, who still like send me eye things. Or um, I recently got hired to do a face workshop, which I thought was kind of funny, because it's not what I'm sort of doing right now. But I, I think that 
it's a natural evolution, right, of how you are or what you're doing is that you get interested in new things. And so the question is, for myself, in terms of reinventing myself, is not whether I've changed, but it's about now that I have change what I'm doing, sort of how I told people about it. It reminds me a little bit of, so I was a theatrical director for many, many years. It's something I said I wanted to do when I was like a little girl. And it's something that I grew up and I did. And then it had been such a huge part of my identity that I would say like five, 10 years into my art making career, people I knew from my life would still ask me how the theater business was. It's because crummy I have, in case anybody right, wants right? to know. <laughs> it is crummy. People stop going out. I stopped going, I haven't seen a live show, I feel like, in a long time. Um, but anyway, I think like that's the idea, right? People change. And so I think the question is not whether or not you've changed again, but whether you're sort of aligning what you're putting out in the world with where you currently are. Like, can you succinctly talk about what you're doing? And this reminds me a little bit of how they say that artist statements should be revised every six months which is interesting to think that a statement of who you are needs to be revisited every six months in order to, to be accurate, you know what I mean, to the work that you're doing right now. I don't know, does that seem like a normal timeline to you? Sure, I think we're used to thinking that you stay the same until you get to certain ages, like you'll say 40, a landmark, you know, 60, a landmark. But in fact, I think you're changing all the time and it's actually part of the interest part of the good thing about let's say keeping a journal mm -hmm. is that you can look back and be surprised by the fact that what interested you then or obsessed you then is over and there's something new so that's good because it keeps you aware of how you're changing i think that's true and i think also like one of the benefits of, uh, so for instance, keeping track of your work and not throwing away old work is that you can see the improvement, whereas you might not be able to see it day to day in the little increments. You can see it sort of over time. And I always find it nice to look back at old work and kind of be like, oh, I see the seeds of where I came from. You know what I mean? What I'm interested in now was kind of there, but in a different way. Almost how like I can look at baby pictures of my son from when he was nine months old. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's still his little face, but it's different. And like the seeds of his personality and who he was that I thought were just like baby things. I'm like, no, that's, that's what he's like today. Like he was a crazy smiley baby. And I just thought all babies were smiley. Right. No. And like peppy and friendly. And he always like looked at strangers and stuff. And he is like the mayor of our town because all he wants to do is talk to every stranger that he sees. So, yeah, it's just it's very interesting. Right. So it's like the roots of who you are might be located somewhere and where you've been. And that's interesting, too. But again, like the sort of takeaway that I would love for people to think about is how can you align where you are now like and present that to people can you have the knowledge of where you are now so i can say to people right now like i'm currently working on a series of abstract maps that are really about these river walks i take with my son and i do them through these mixed media monotypes you know okay and that's sort of where I am right now. So if somebody asked me, and I'm sure six months ago, I would have said something different. And six months from now, I'll probably say something different. But I have like my little elevator speech, you know, about what I do. If somebody says to me at a dinner party, as if I ever go to a dinner party, <laughs> uh, if, they, if even a theoretical dinner party, somebody said to me, like they used to in the old days, you know, oh, what do you do? I could say, oh, I'm an artist. I primarily do printmaking, collage, and painting. And I like to mix the three together. Like I know where I am right now. And I think like even a year ago, I would have said I'm a mixed media artist. So I think you have to constantly evaluate. And the question or the challenge I would give out there to our listeners and watchers is to say like, can you write just one sentence? That describes what you do right now so that you can tell people, you know, I'm a, I'm a card maker, I'm a painter, I'm a printmaker, or maybe it's more complex. I do a lot of work inspired, most of my artwork is inspired by nature, and I use a, a lot of different media to explore that, you know, infatuation with the natural world. Long Sounds sentence, good. many semicolons and commas. 
<laughs> Semicolons are your friend. I also like dashes myself. Uh, okay, so then the second change that we can talk about is not just that like people change, but that's a circumstance change, right? So right. that is, I think uh, COVID was a great example of this. So many people just, you know, your your business, your ability to do business, your the way that you were used to interacting, like all those things changed, right? Maybe when COVID came, you had less time because suddenly your kids were home, or maybe you had more time because you weren't socializing and doing things, or maybe, you know, your commute went away because you're working from home, so you had more time, but then you didn't get to go to the art store that's near your office, or do you know what I mean? Who knows what it is? But I think that circumstances can change. And the question, and I think we, I, I hear this a lot on business podcasts that I listen to, the difference between fighting change and embracing change. Okay. Tell us about it. Well, I mean, I think you know this. It's like if you spend all your days be, trying to get back to what was, it's what you said at the beginning. If you spend all your time being upset that it doesn't work the way that it was and moaning and wishing that it was somehow different than it is. Like you don't make any progress. The question is, can you see the change? Be like, okay, I don't like this. This is scary, but what can I do given the circumstances to move forward? And you know, the, the example I'll use for my own life is I had been teaching online, but suddenly it was like, okay, we're going to teach through zoom. That's going to be how we pivot you know, into it. And I still remember when I had to reschedule some of the in-person classes that people had paid for. And I reached out and I was like, Hey, would you be interested in doing this as a zoom workshop? Some people were absolutely like, no, no, just give me my money back. And other people were like, sure, I'll give that a try. You know, and that's actually what Design Bootcamp came out of for me. And for anybody who doesn't know, Design Bootcamp is this course. It's a massive workshop that I do once a year, a really intensive look at um, the elements and, and uh, principles of design and how to use them in your art, basically how to make better art, how to be in control of the art instead of the art being control of you. And um, that was supposed to be an in-person, like, three-day class and then I was like, how am I going to convert this to Zoom? And it ended up developing this, you know, six-week course out of it, which was really a great pivot for me and a huge learning, you know? And I think of Matisse, who, why did he start doing his cutouts? Illness, right? Changed his life. He became bedridden. He had to paint. Uh, he couldn't paint anymore. He had to use the cut paper. He had to, you know, be able to do that stuff. Frida Kahlo stuck in bed, having to paint, you know, a particular way, a particular size. They even say Monet losing his eyesight, you know, having those cataracts. Like, was it intentional that that his painting changed, or did the disease affect it? But who knows? All of these people, right, said this stinks. <laughs> But instead of moaning about it, and, and you don't like, know, maybe they were moaning, maybe they were moaners. It's true. Maybe they were moaners. Um, but what they did in the end is they found a way to work with the changed circumstance. And like, sometimes I think there was a, I think it was at the Whitney many years ago, I saw some art that was made by an artist who, um, was a was a folk artist untrained but he had made art with spit and soot so they looked a lot like charcoal drawings but that's what he had at his disposal was he had his desire to make art was so great that in his circumstances he took soot and spit and made these beautiful drawings or maybe they're paintings is soot and spit a paint or i don't know anyway these artworks Anyway, it was, and it was just really inspiring because it was like, you know, I get so many emails and messages every day about like what paint, what stamp pad, what ink, what, you know, what, whatever. And it's like, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You know, can we forget that so many fine artists <laughs> were using egg wash as you know, to make their painting. I mean, Rothko's paintings are literally rotting away and changing color because he was using egg tempera and egg wash in his paints, you know? And there's, there's just lots of examples of that where I think we worry too much now uh, about doing things 
right or correctly instead of sort of embracing what we have and where we are and being like, let's just do it. Let's see what happens. Well, and also I think the people who ask you feel that in finding out what you use and using it, they'll be better able to do what you do. Yes, I think that's true. But I will say one of the biggest lessons I tell people all the time is the better artist you are, the worse materials you can use. Right. The more of a beginner you are, the more you actually need good materials. And it's kind of ironic. Good brushes. Good, right? You need the good, highly pigmented paint. You need the really good brushes when you're a beginner. When you're a super advanced painter, you can take a stick, you know, and some mud and be like, doesn't it look great? And it's not, I mean, so what happens is you've mastered techniques, ideas, da, da, da. So you don't need the materials to help you. So if you're a beginner, invest in some good stuff um, because I think it really does help. Okay. So that's a, one of the reasons what? why it's sad that schools, because they have to watch the budget, they give kids who are doing art in school, not very good equipment. And so the results are often frustrating for them. I agree. It frustrates me sometimes when my son brings home artwork from preschool and I can tell that like, it's this paint that like flakes off the paper and yeah, like or the colors, colors aren't bright and yeah. they aren't intense. And like, I get it. I get it a hundred percent. And also they want to use washable products, non-toxic products. And these are little like three and four year olds. So I totally get it. Um, but I do, we actually have a book called The Artist. I'm trying to remember who the author is. Um, but it's literally about that. Like he grows Coming up. Coming to Paola. Yes. He goes just to school. He only gets one piece of paper. He has to use the school crayons, which are not as nice as his, you know, crayons from home. And like, it is a contrast. My brother actually texted me today asking for um, some art supply recommendations for his son. And the, again, like the only thing I said to him is I said, look for things that are highly pigmented that are actually artist supplies, but that are water soluble because there are lots of them. And that way the kid gets the satisfaction of like this highly pigmented, bright colors, really saturated. And yet you're not hysterical that there's acrylic paint all over your rug. Because he would be, <laughs> your brother oh, would yeah. be. Oh yeah, he would be, he would be. So yeah, I think, you know, luckily they live in California. So I think this can be outdoor art projects. Uh, okay, so thing number three on my list is really actually mom again, hit it on the head as she always does as the wise Yoda that she is, um, which is about staying relevant, right? If you don't change and update and like reinvent yourself somehow, you're obsolete very quickly, right? You need to stay ahead of trends. You need to incorporate new techniques and remain competitive. I mean, lots of professionals and lots of professions have like required continuing education because they understand this, that you can't stagnate. You know, you need new inputs, new ideas, new techniques. And I think um, there are lots of ways to do this, but it reminds me a little bit about like sometimes you see people who they're still dressing like they did 20 years ago. Their hair is the same color, the same style, the same cut as they had 20 years ago. And like, you just, they don't look good because you're like, oh, you're stuck in something that's old, you know? And I think it's the same thing of, there are artists whose work I absolutely loved. And then they just kept doing the same thing over and over and over again. And I was like, getting bored, getting bored, getting bored. You know what I mean? And I needed there to be a change and there wasn't, there just was no relevance anymore. It like hit a moment where it was really right and on trend and great. Not that artwork all has to be trendy. I guess trend is a bad word, but it was, it was, um, it spoke to you and it was fresh and new. The problem yeah, within with the working artist is you find something that sells. And if you're living off the proceeds of your yes. paintings, there's an urge to keep making what sells until it doesn't sell and then you have to figure it out right but even like i feel like even within a narrow band like if you make flower paintings you can still move the flower paintings 10 percent each time that's my own feeling but that's partially because i can't imagine doing the same thing for <laughs> forever and ever and ever for a really long time i mean i think 
maybe it's my personality, but even like one of the things I always loved about the theater and being a director as opposed to an actor is you show up, you work on the play, you rehearse it, opening night happens and you walk away. You know what I mean? It's like not your project anymore and you get to move on to the next thing. It's a very like cyclical thing. And I think even in the, the job I have now as an artist, it is also very much that way. It's incredibly intense when I'm working on a class and then the class, you know, is done and it's done and I move on. It's incredibly intense. Do you know what I mean? On a project by project basis, you know, and then it's kind of done. That gets, gets to an underlying basic part of your personality, which is you love to learn. You have this desire to learn. You're excited when you learn. And people who love to learn will, without question, on their own, want to keep trying new things, talking to new people, reading new books, seeing new exhibits, because that's all wonderful input for learning. And I think the problem is if you uh, don't want to learn and you want to master something and then be good at it and never be a beginner again, then that's where you're stuck with the, well, now all I'm ever going to do is I'm going to draw birds. Yes. Although there was an artist who I met who told me such a good thing, which is she said, you don't have to be a beginner in your field to remember what being a beginner feels like. And that can rejuvenate your creativity. So she said she used to do things like take a dance class take a cooking class, like just do something she knew that she didn't know how to do. She'd be a beginner at and that she'd be the worst. So she could remember those feelings and kind of take that input and that sense of newness into her work, even though her work was still very much the same year after year, but with these little tiny, you know, refreshes, I guess you'd call by just being a beginner. I mean, think if your life was that you only new people you knew growing up and then you never met anybody new. Yeah. You would, you would not develop in the same way as you would if you were meeting new people. That's another reason why some people love to travel because they're forced to confront things that are new. I have new to say that, that having a child has completely yes. done that to me in horrible, terrible <laughs> but also fantastic ways. Like I often say this about him in the most loving way possible. I wanted him. I was delighted when I found out I was pregnant. I'm so happy that he's around. He's my favorite human on earth. Like all those things what? are true. But what? he was, I'm sorry, mom, but he was like a atom bomb in my life and just blew it up. And every time he changes, he, every time I think I know what I'm doing, every time I think I know how to parent, he just blows it up in a new direction. And I'm a beginner all over again. You know, I talked to um, a friend that I grew up with recently. We She took um, her son to the zoo with us. And she has now a second child. And she said, it's like being a new parent all over again. Because this kid is so different from the first kid that everything she knew about parenting is like, no, 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 that's that, that wasn't you. That was just the kid's personality. Like she... She said, I literally feel like a first-time parent. I have no idea what to do with him 90% of the time, and I'm just sort of making it up. And I thought that's so interesting. And it also reminded me of the fact that like learning is hard. And that's one of the reasons that people talk about like these years with little kids as being just really tough, slung. Well, with the sleep deprivation thrown in. Yeah, it's like sleep. I mean, he's four. And last night, you know, Steve, so I was going to say Steve slept in, in his room last night. I slept in his room the night before. He's still, we still have trouble. Do you know what I mean? All the time. And you just wonder, you know, how long does that go up? I'm. It's a rare night around here that somebody doesn't have to get up in the middle of the night and deal with something, you know? And I think that like, it's this thing. I think I mentioned to the, this to you a couple days ago. I saw this TikTok video where this person was saying, I don't know who needs to hear this, but like, if you have little kids, this is your time to survive and not to thrive. Right. And so all of that is really, as it relates to what we're talking about is to say that learning is hard. Being new at something is hard. It's being, unsettling because you're yeah, used it's to really being competent and then suddenly you feel you're not competent. Right. And so if you're reinventing yourself, there's going to be a period of time that's really kind of 
icky where you're like, oh, this is like what's happening. It's it's um kind of like I think Tiger Woods is one athlete who's done it, but many have where they've changed something major about themselves. Like when Tiger Woods had to change his swing and he just wasn't good for like a year while he was, you know, working it out until he could come back, you know what I mean, to form. And I think that is sort of what happens is if you're making a big change, I think you have to kind of accept that there's a ramp of learning. For everything. I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, a lot of people feel, okay, I want to go on a diet. And they don't understand. It's not just that you'll, there'll be different things that you eat. It's different things that you shop for in the store. It's different things that you uh, cook for dinner. It's different things in your refrigerator than you're used to. It's different restaurants maybe that you have to go to. I mean, it's, and that curve of learning takes a while and then you'll get used to that. And then something, I was just talking about this with your brother yesterday, the thing that is a major change is when, when your last kid goes to college and suddenly the refrigerator is full of leftovers, which you're not, you're not used to that because usually they would disappear in the middle of the night. And so now you have to shop differently and it, it's just each little change, but I think it's good. I think it's good to change because that's what keeps, at least for me, that's what keeps you feeling like you're alive. Yeah. And I think actually that leads us to number four, which is breaking out of your comfort zones in terms of like, why, if you have everything going really well in your life, why would you want to do a reinvention? And the answer is that I think that, you know, creativity thrives outside of comfort zones. In fact, I saw this interview um, with a sculptor, a British sculptor, whose name I desperately, I'm so bad at names. I really need to write things down. But anyway, she, what she was talking about is that she felt that creativity, real creativity happens at that moment when you're just out of control. When you're feeling like, you know, it's like going around a curve too fast in your car or something. It's like, you know, you're in control, but something's happening where it's like, ooh, this is a little dangerous. And I think that reinventing yourself creatively involves taking risks, trying new things, exploring uncharted territories. And like the whole process really can lead to some valuable discoveries and breakthroughs. And that's the real like, why to do it? Why? Why mess yourself up on purpose? To be better up but why why do the work yeah because i don't think there's anything great without doing some work i think that's true and i think like this is one of the things okay i'm gonna soapbox for just a moment and if you can't soapbox on your own podcast where can you soapbox um which is to say that i so i never went to art school right i'm a self-taught artist and um, all of the things that I wanted to do when I first started making art were what I call the frostings in art. It's the, the kind of glitter layer. I want to play with the pretty colors and I want to do the little techniques and I want to have the things that look, you know what I mean? Like I want to do all the frosting stuff. I don't want to bake the cake. I just want to decorate it. And what I learned now, 10 plus years into being a working artist, is that I had to learn how to bake the cake. You know what I mean? That doing the foundational framework was as important, if not more important than the frosting. That the frosting was like, it's like the tip of the iceberg. It's 10%. You know, 90% of the of uh, how good or bad the final output is, is based on what you can't see, what's under the water, the framework, understanding the structure of artwork, understanding like the basic techniques, studio practice, like all of that stuff. And so it's become a huge, I feel like a proselytizer all the time now, because I want to just scream from the rooftops, like, you guys, I discovered the secret to making better work. It turns out it's everything that everybody else always told you you're supposed to do, which is learn the foundations of art. Uh, and so it's, but it's, I think it's like, it's become my mission to kind of spread that idea, that information and be like, you don't have to go to art school to get it, but you do have to get it somehow. You know what I mean? And I think that's so important. It's kind of like, I know that like, you're a really good cook because you've had so much practice and you understand the underlying foundational ideas 
behind cooking. Like you know how to make a substitution because you understand what what part that that food is making. Do you know what I mean? In everything else, that ingredient is doing to other things. Whereas I'm like, I need a recipe, and I need to know exactly how much, and I need to follow it because I just don't have the deep knowledge. And it also a little bit. So we've been watching the Bake Off because I love Bake Off. Great British Baking Show, um, which I think is called Bake Off now, but they um, they do this thing. One of the challenges is like a blind challenge where the uh, bakers cannot prepare in any way, and they give them a recipe that doesn't have a lot of instruction and some ingredients, and they have to kind of just figure it out. And what it tests is how deep their technical knowledge is. You know, even though they don't know really what they're making or like. They may have never heard of the thing. It's like, can you basically understand what the idea is? Like, oh, this is supposed to be, I see based on these ingredients and the way that they're having us put it together, that this is supposed to be a light and fluffy dough. So I will make it this way. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm going to guess the cooking time based on the kind of dough this is and my knowledge that it would be this and that. And I think like what you see is the more experienced bakers or the people who know understand the underpinnings of baking always do better at those challenges than the people who don't have that foundational knowledge. So I'm not even sure how we got on this tangent. How did I get on the soapbox about foundational knowledge? Um <laughs> it, it also in other in there's a couple of American uh, baking or cooking shows where they give them a bunch of unexpected oh, like ingredients that. yeah and they have to put it together and make something and that again it tests your basic knowledge of how things work together right and i think like the more you know i mean this is it sounds so trite it turns out that so many of those trade statements are based on facts but yeah the more you know, like the more power you do have, it really, it really works that way. Darn right. it. They're tools in your, in your brain. They're part yeah, of yeah, your yeah. tool set. Um, it's not a good segue, but number five on my list <laughs> is um, combating burnout and rediscovering passion, right? Yeah. Which is a reason, again, to reinvent yourself creatively is that long-term engagement in any creative pursuit, right, can lead to burnout, a loss of motivation, and reinventing yourself creatively injects fresh energy into your work, preventing stagnation, and rekindling the excitement and curiosity that initially sparked your creative journey, right? Because I find that, for so for instance, I don't carve stamps all year long anymore. I just really don't, partially because I make 31 stamps every year and I just don't need that many new stamps, right? I've got hundreds of stamps around here. But I do find that like Carve December is one of my most creative, like fertilely creative time periods because it's an intense burst of something slightly left to what I do normally but it gets at a lot of things that my brain is interested in about patterning, about shapes, about how to take the same square day after day and change it into something new, about how to translate a word into an idea, into a visual, uh, you know, about like positive and negative space, about so many things. And I find that what happens is it's not a total creative reinvention for me to post, you know, and create stamps every day in December, but it's a little bit of one. Do you know what I mean? Because I not, it's not what I've been doing. And it doesn't actually have to be even something that you do in art. Because mm -hmm. let's say you suddenly take up yoga or you suddenly start going for nature walks or something like that. It may somehow come creep into your thinking about the art that you're doing and you suddenly find that it's influencing it. So I don't think it has to directly be in the field that you're in. I agree. You know, so um, I can't even remember when, a couple years ago, probably, for some reason, I subscribed to this service called Creative Bug, which is like an online, right, classroom. Um, I have subsequently found out, by the way, that many libraries, including my own, have a subscription to Creative Bug, and you therefore don't need to pay for it. But anyway, I canceled my subscription recently because I've been trying to like see like where's all the random miscellaneous money going so that we never have any money, right? Um, but as part of the deal with Creative Bug is like every month you're subscribed, you get these credits. 
So I was trying to desperately use up my credits before my subscription runs out, right? Now that I've canceled. What do you do and with your credits? So what you can do is you can, so it's a member, it's a monthly membership, right? But if you have a credit, you can, you can pick one class to save forever, even when your membership ends. Ah, with the right? credit. With the credit. So I was cycling all through the classes and I was thinking, you know, and you're, I'm trying to think strategically, like what is the class that I want to keep forever that's different from what's on YouTube that would actually be interesting to me like six months from now or a year from now or whatever, right? Because I, the creative bug classes are fun, but they're very beginner oriented, you know what I mean? And they don't go super deep. So I stumbled across a class um, that was about like reigniting your creativity, which also seemed appropriate for today's conversation. And it was interesting because I sort of, you know, poked through what the different lessons in it. And it was like 30 days of something of reigniting your creativity. And the things in it were different staff members who work at Creative Bug or different teachers said something they do to like reestablish their creativity. And it was stuff like making lists, tidying up the studio. That's one of yours. Yeah. But it was all these things that I was like, hmm, that's not what I would have thought of. It's not like, oh, I do this exercise where I paint upside down with four colors and then I take away two colors. And you know what I mean? Uh It was very much just like, how do you get your, how do you kick your brain? into a different space, you know? And I thought that was just a good takeaway. I didn't use my credit on that, by the way. But um, <laughs> but I did think it was a good tip, you know? I don't know, how do you, how do you sort of like, do you ever get burned out? Do you ever feel that need to sort yes, of- Yes, but really I will tell things? you that actually your son has provided a lot of stimulation because after all these years I have forgotten a lot of things about having a toddler around and anyway this is not the same toddler as the two that I had Mm -hmm. and just watching him change watching him discover things listening to the hilarious things that he says and you wonder where where did he get that sentence uh is very uh it creates some creativity in my brain you know and I try to figure things out and I and I'm doing and saying things watching things that I don't otherwise do I mean because I'm in this completely different age group a lot of my friends do not have small children or even children at home so it's as if a whole new door has opened to me there there are all kinds of things in life that are like a new you you live in a house you think you know your house and then suddenly you learn this one thing and it's as if a door has opened to a room that was hidden there i felt that way when i first learned how to use a computer cuz i didn't grow up with it i'm old enough that no one in college had a computer i mean it was just totally brand new uh with those cards you know the weird ibm cards with the punches um but like learning how to use a computer and then later the internet, that was like doors opening to new rooms in my house. And that's, I think, is very stimulating uh, to your creativity because then you can figure out, oh, now I can do this. Mm-hmm. So I can't remember if it's English or Australian, but there was a show which I saw clips of on TikTok that I got obsessed with. It was a documentary where they did an experiment where at a nursing home, they put a preschool in the nursing home. And the preschool kids for a set period of time each day would visit with some of the people who lived in the nursing home. And they were each basically like assigned a person, right? And the amazing thing that happened is so many of the nursing home residents came alive hadn't stood up and walked in a long time, but the kid kept saying, come on, come on. I want to go. Let's do this. Let's do that. You know what I mean? And so they went, you know, and like became playful, smiled, laughed in ways that they hadn't because the kids don't pick up social cues. So when you're grumpy, they're still pulling on you and saying like, let's go for a walk. Let's do that. You know what I mean? Or whatever it is. They're just, there's something there that's forced 
these older people out of their old habits, out of their old even beliefs about themselves and who they were now and forced them or invited them into a whole new, you know, idea of themselves. And like, I think myself watching my phone and like weeping with tears, do you know what I mean? During these transformations, because it was so incredibly simple and so sweet. And, and you could see the kindness of these kids who would just, you know, like how people say kids are relentless, who like even upon being rejected, potentially even rudely, would keep coming back or try again in a different way or, you know what I mean? And it it was just, I think it was good also for the kids. Like they said, you know, some of them didn't have grandparents or, you know, only had one parent or whatever it was. And it was an opportunity to make a real relationship you know, with another adult. And like, they followed some of them, you know, after the year to sort of see what happened. And some of the pairings, like um, some of the uh, people in the nursing home didn't have families anymore. Their families had all died or whatever. They were estranged. And so they found that like some of the families of the preschoolers end up kind of like adopting these old people into their families and like taking them home for Christmas or inviting them over for holidays. And again, it was just this idea of like, why do we keep things so separate? Like, isn't there some simple ways to reignite people and to give people at both ends of the age spectrum, things that they're looking for, you know? Oh my gosh. It was so good. Anyway, I want to find that. You're all choked up. I am. It was so like, it just like, there's there. I think one of the reasons I like teaching is one of the reasons that I also really liked being a theatrical director. There is the, there are moments when you can't awaken in somebody else, something magical. And it's you, I don't know how to explain it. You see them unfolding. You see their walls coming down. You see the magic spark coming out of them. Like, there is no high like unleashing something creative and wonderful and special in somebody else. Like it just feels so good. And it's such an exciting moment to be a part of. And I don't know. I think that like, for me, one of the, in a funny way, one of the ways that I combat burnout and sort of rediscover my passion is through teaching because when I see other people get excited about things that I am jaded about, when I see other people have breakthroughs, when I see other people have success, when I see all those things, I like, I get into like a super excited space where I'm like, yes, this is fun. Yes, this is awesome. Yes. And it makes me want to do more, be more. You know what I mean? It stops. I think, I don't think I could be like a full-time teacher. Like that's the only thing I do. And I never do my own art. I think that would burn me out on teaching, but I think the other way really works for me being a full-time artist and doing some teaching. So then it's like, Oh, now the teaching is a selfish thing. Huh? I'm not altruistic at all. It's just things that I, I want to make myself feel good. Huh. Well, now we've learned something important about me. That's okay. <laughs> It's okay to want to make yourself feel good and to do things that make you happy. I mean, I think that's another thing where I could go off on a whole speech about how we're taught not to not to want things for ourselves, you know. Always think of others. That's the old burned cookie thing. Mm-hmm. I think I that's always, true. I think it's I think it's true that every I'll let I you always take the burned mm-hmm. cookie. Yeah. Because I was going to say, like, there is always someone in my class whose husband, children, partner, whatever, kind of poops on their work and poops on the time they spend doing it and poops on the money and poops, 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 poops. Wow. And that's a really hard one because when other people don't don't like say that things that make you happy are wonderful and things that make you, I mean, as long as they're non-harmful, you know, if you're, if what makes you happy is murdering people, like obviously don't do that. But you know what I mean? If a non-harmful something makes you happy, you know what I mean? It's, I think it is true that you should embrace that. But as women, we are so often taught 
to put yourself at the end of the list. I saw, um, I think you sent me the clip of the woman who had been the CEO, I think, of IBM. No, I, you're, she's the, currently, I think she's the CEO of either Coke or Pepsi. Oh, oh yeah, it was Pepsi. I don't know why I said IBM. But anyway, um, but one of the things that she said is she said, like, on the list, her husband had said to her, like, on the list is, like, whatever it was, Coke or Pepsi, Coke Pe or whatever, you know, work, 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 then the kids, then your mother, then maybe me, you know? And she sort of joked and laughed, and she said, you know, I, there's two ways of thinking about it. And she said, one way is, isn't he lucky to be on the list? You know, he was in the like, audience too. Yeah. I mean, and he clearly like a big did. laugh and the whole thing. And what I found was interesting is I looked in the comments on the video, and one of the comments was, "Imagine if a man said that." And the yeah. and the fact of the matter is, men have been saying that for years. Men do say that all the time. You know, um, Steve and I have been watching Wrexham. We're way behind on this series about this, you know, soccer club um, that Ryan Reynolds and Ron McElhaney own. And in it, there's a guy who is like, uh, I don't even know what his title is in the club, club president or something, but he goes on vacation, which he hasn't done in a long time for a week. And uh, basically yeah. day one of the vacation, they're calling him day, you know, by day three, he's like, I'm, I'm coming back, you know? And I was, and the whole thing is, and I was thinking about like his wife and like her acceptance of the fact that like his job is it like that is what they do and how that has been true for for women it was true for our family growing up i think it's true for a lot of people all the time you know and so there is this thing about why can't i take up space you know it's the old joke of Cher's mother saying she wanted him and wanted her to marry a rich man and Cher saying mom i am a rich man you know which is can can we just take up space. Can we not stop looking for validation in others? Can we be, take the best cookie, the biggest slice, the, you know, the thing that you want, the last piece, all that stuff. Anyway, the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, you can take it all. Okay. So, uh, the last thing that I have on my list, number six is connecting with new audiences. So one of the things, and this actually kind of loops back, it's a loop back to the idea of like people change and you may not be presenting yourself as you are now, but rather as you were, or even thinking of yourself in that same way, which is, um, if you're feeling like you're not connecting with the people in your group, whether it's like a quick group you belong to an online community, you know, part of it may be that like, you're just creatively not in the same space anymore. And so a creative reinvention can attract a different audience or geographic. You can, you know, if you can reach new people who might resonate with your evolved style or message. So maybe you find that you're doing a lot of printmaking. So maybe it's time to leave the card making group. That's been great for you in the past. But now you're just you're less interested in cards specifically, and you're more interested in all the printmaking techniques you've learned along the way, and you want to like grab that and bring it into your practice. And part of that, I think, is having to be open about how you've changed or what the creative reinvention is, even if it's scary. It's like maybe you were and your entire identity was tied up in being who knows a knitter but now you've fallen in love with something totally different and like it's okay to you know show that you've changed share that you've changed tell people that you're on a new trajectory maybe you were you know always interested in figures and people say to you like how come you don't do figures anymore i'd love to see more figural work for me and you say you know i'm just not not interested in that. And you start following other artists who are interested in what you're in. And you join in a group on Facebook about abstract artists and who knows what it is. You start taking classes that are more about the techniques that you're interested in. But I think like it's, if you're interested in making a creative reinvention, it's kind of like getting sober where they say that you need to um, potentially change your friends. Like if you're sober and all your friends are the friends that you partied with, it's going to be really hard to be sober. Right. Right. So maybe you need to find some new friends. So it's like if you are a person who maybe wants to do, you know, 
Basquiat style abstract, you know, art, something that's like really graffiti-esque and yada, yada. And everybody at your local art, you know, whatever is like a realistic landscape portrait. Bowl of fruit. Everybody yeah. wants a bowl, bowl of fruit. Everybody makes a bowl of fruit. And like, you know, we really, this is that we really, you know, value the old masters here and stuff like that's just not, it's not a good place for you anymore. And like, so you need to find a new place for a fit for you to make that creative reinvention successful. That's what I That happens really. all the time. You know, large institutions do it all the time. Museums are doing it now. They're trying to figure out what are the places in our collection that where we're not serving all the interests of the people who might be attracted to coming to our museum or businesses do it. You know, what are we not making here that people are looking to buy and what are we making that nobody wants to buy or uh, politicians have to figure out uh, who are the people who, resonate with my values and am I really expressing them and going mm -hmm. to the places where these people would find me? I mean, I think it happens all the time. You have to find your audience and don't assume that it's the same audience, that mm -hmm. things are changing outside of you too. Yeah. You know, I listened to an interview with the guy who is responsible for like Amon and Panera. I can't remember his name either. Rod Shake. There you go. This is an entire podcast about how I don't know anybody's name. Uh, I'm the old <laughs> one. I'm the one who's supposed to have memory loss. Yeah, but you're already so much smarter than me that like it doesn't matter how much you lose. You're just coming down to my level. Um, but what I was going to say is, so I was listening to this podcast interview with him, and he was saying like the big aha for him with Almut Paz, it was a bakery, and people kept coming in and asking them to slice the baguettes. And when they would try to slice them like, you know, a loaf of Wonder Bread, they'd be like, no, 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 slice them the long way. And basically what they wanted was sandwich bread because then they would have sandwich stuff and they would fill the baguettes and like sit in this bakery eating a sandwich. And he was like, well, I don't know why we're not making the sandwiches, you know, and that was like a huge realization. And he talked a lot about looking for the opportunities instead of trying to like make something happen. It's like, look for what people need, like look for the problem and solve it. And that just makes me think a lot of times about creative reinvention, that it's like, you don't need to force a creative reinvention. Look at what you're making. Look at what you're interested in. Look at the artists who you love, what they make. Look at, you know, what you talk about. Look at what you read. Look at about, look at what you think about while you're in the shower or before bed or whatever. Your like, home, what you wear. Yeah. Right, exactly. And make like, sure that every there's a, a clues. A Venn diagram where a lot of these things are in the center. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so we should wrap up. I'm so glad that we're back, but we've been chit-chattering for a good hour here almost. Um, I wanted to mention before we go, uh, if you want just more awesomeness all the time, you can, of course, sign up for oh, a membership. <laughs> There's a monthly membership program, which you can find over at ballsresigns.com. Um, and then I do have an upcoming um, class called... Uh, Practical Color for Painters, uh, which I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be, um, it's one of those it foundational for courses. Or for artists? Well, so it's called, this is actually a really good question. So somebody said to me, why is it only for painters? And I said, it's really for anybody who mixes color. Because uh, like if you paint your own collage paper, this class is for you. If you use found paper, I think, will you get something out of it? But you'll get less. If you're a printmaker and you like to mix your own colors when you make prints, fantastic. But you have to be a person because it's color theory that um, what I'm really helping you towards besides all the mixing colors is understanding how to use color to convey emotions, how to choose a color palette, and how to create a color palette, which you can do when you use paint in a different way than let's say you're a beater or a quilter where you have to find a color palette. Do you know what I mean? You can make a color palette when you use paint. So instead of saying, I guess instead of saying practical colors for painters, it could be called practical color for people who use paint. Is that better? Can you talk very briefly about the fact that you were having um, 
a discussion with a group you're in mm-hmm. and they asked you about the class and then they said you, that your class description was terrible did not convey terrible. what you were telling them that the class was about i mean yes. it sort of <laughs> generated some of this wish to reinvent it did. So I so I have this group coaching group that meets monthly and it sort of changes loosely, but it's sort of a core same group of people. And one of the women asked me, like, what's the deal with this new class? And I sort of talked about it. And she's like, well, that wasn't in the description. Anything that you just said was not in the description. And I thought that was so funny because I thought it was in the description, actually. Um, and so I went back and I rewrote it and like, okay, so some of the part that I ended up rewriting is I was saying like the class is based on the problems I see across the board from my students in my classes, from beginners to even advanced students, they don't have a working knowledge of how to use color effectively in their work. And color theory itself is like huge and scary and very complicated. And with this class, my goal is to create something that's practical, meaning it's packed with immediately usable tips, you know, exercises and ideas, like real things you can do now, not like a bunch of theory mumbo jumbo. So we start really basic. Each lesson kind of adds on. And it's a six lesson class, but it's spread out over the year, one class every two months. And I was explaining to them when I teach a six week class, maybe 20% of the people actually finish the assignments and like make it to the six week end. It's just, it's too intense, right? Like your life happens, stuff comes up. So I have found over time that by spacing the classes, that doesn't like, if you get sick, if your mother gets sick, if you if you go on vacation, if your house burns down, like, I'm sorry, I hope your house doesn't burn down, but like whatever happens, there's space in it so that you can finish. Cause obviously I want people to be successful. Um, so classes like as a combination of live and recorded demos, there's homework, the space between classes gives you plenty of time to complete the lessons, master the skills, because that's key, because we're trying to build each skill. So you have to master the first one to get the second one, right? And then by the end of the year, the idea here, the important takeaway for me, because I'm all about practical and I'm all about foundation, is that everybody is going to basically make for themselves a binder that is a huge reference book that you're going to be able to have for yourself to use. You know, because the color rules are pretty finite, like it's not going to change in 10 years. You can still refer back to this binder. So you're still going to be able to have that reference binder. You can understand how to use color to get the results you want. There's actually a great quote I found. I wonder if I can find it again um, from uh, Delacroix who is a great painter, Ah, here he said, so not only can color, which is under fixed laws, be taught like music, but it is easier to learn than drawing whose elaborate principles cannot be taught. And I thought that was a pretty good like notion, which is color can be taught. You can learn these ideas, you know what I mean? And so that's the sort of whole idea. And it was really, I'm so glad that those women told me that my class description was terrible because I have taken that advice and I rewrote it and I actually sent it out to a bunch of them. And I was like, can you look at this again after telling me it was terrible? And they sent back more suggestions and somebody even caught a typo. So I was just reminded how wonderful it is to like have a tribe, to have people who are smart and interesting. And like, I just, I'm a little on cloud nine today just because it was so nice. So a hive mind is very Mm -hmm. important when you're, writing things because sometimes in your own head you know what you're saying and what you're planning but you have to convey that in a way that everybody else gets it yeah and it was also interesting because when I they were asking about the class I was like I don't want to I'm not trying to sell you guys on this but like this is the gist behind it and one of the women was like well you're doing a much better job selling it now than you did in the description and I was like oh okay well that's bad for me anyway so so uh, so it is going to be a great class. I'm super excited about it. I hope lots of people will sign up. Um, if you want to find it or me, you can find always everything at juliebalzer.com. That's my main website. The classroom site is balzerzines.com. Um, I really hope you'll sign up for the weekly newsletter. It comes out on Fridays. There's a big button on the homepage of juliebalzer.com. I'll also post it everywhere. Yeah, for the newsletter. Um, This is back to the beginning of I stopped blogging, but I'm still sending a weekly newsletter. So that's where to get all my incredible insights, information and, you know, thoughts for the week. Um, If you'd like to help the show, which since this is our great return after quite a hiatus, we would love to have you help us out. 
Um, if you can leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast, if you can mention us on social media, if you can tell a friend, you know, forward the show to somebody, that would be amazing because all of those things help people find the show or remind them that we're back or whatever. So thank you, mom. Thank you to all of you. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing. Uh, and we'll see you the next time on the adventures in arting podcast.